If you'll open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. I'm just going to be reading the first four verses to begin with, but we'll be looking at verses 1 through 20. It says, After these things, when the anger of the king, King Ahasuerus, had subsided, he, were, he remembered Queen Esther and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, Let the beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to Susa, the capital, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given to them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vasti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just ask for your grace and its sufficiency to reach into our hearts, our lives in such a very powerful and special way that uh, we'll leave this place just feeling, sensing your presence in our life more dearly, more preciously. And I pray that we will just be challenged to be more committed that we will look for opportunities to serve you and deliberately be, uh, have our eyes open to the opportunities that you have for us and allow the Spirit of God to just lead us. And uh, Lord, may we just come back next week ready to, to worship because we have been spoken to this week. We've gone out and been obedient to you and seen you at work and and we're back ready to worship you because of what you're doing help it be a, an exciting life like that in our life have our eyes open to you god and may it begin in this this service by lifting you up and allowing your grace to work in our lives in jesus name amen Years ago, there was a uh, popular singer by the name of Frank Sinatra. I know that some of you have heard of him. And if you haven't, one of the most popular songs that he did was, I Did It My Way. And part through, uh, partway through the song, after emphasizing his self-sufficiency and, and his self-willed life, he did squeeze in a line that implied some, maybe some weakness upon his part as he mentions regrets, I've had a few. But that's just a few passing moments because quickly he went back into the, uh, the singing, but I did it my way. And so here we're looking at a king that did it his way. Some regrets, he may not really like to, to mention it, but we're going to look at, at uh, some of the regrets that he had and how it affected him and what how God is working through all of this. This is a neat thing. This is the, I mean, having our eyes open to the truth and seeing God at work in all of this. I, I want to just bring out a few things before we get into the passage. I want you to remember that this is Persia. This is a what? 
different culture, isn't it? This is a place where they worshipped other gods. This is a place where a lot of the Jews were allowed to go back home. Well, all of them were, but just some of them went. And some became what personized in the culture. They, they just kind of blended in, and we'll be talking about this. This is all going on, and, and God's name is not even mentioned throughout this. And you would think, why in the world is this book in here? And the neat thing about it is we begin to see God at work in all of this behind the scene. We have an awesome God, people. This is why we need our eyes open to the spiritual. We need to look and see what's going on. Here's a king. What has happened? In chapter 1, he had this great party, this long party. Six months, man, it was just a, a, a wonderful time feasting and plenty of food, plenty of drinks, all of this entertainment of all kinds until he got so drunk he decided, well, you know, his wife's having the party over there with the women, so I'm going to have this beautiful trophy of mine come over here in front of everybody, all these dignitaries, let them covet what I have, Queen Vasti. And I'm going to let her parade before them. She said, no. Well, he's like a whipped dog, whining. He didn't know what to do. Embarrassed before the dignitaries. Well, some of his uh, men in office, his officials, his people that he listened to, they told him, said, well, you know, man, this is going to be embarrassing. It's going to be embarrassing for the whole country, the whole area, everyone that hears about this. Man, the wives are going to rebel. There's going to be a movement. My wife even, she may be involved in it. So we better do something about it. So they made a decree, eat it. They said what? Said, we're going to get rid of her for her refusing the king. This is a disgrace. And so they have her removed, completely removed. Now, this was not one of his concubines, was it? This was his wife. This is the one that he came home to. The others he could have relationships with. This was the one who he came home and he talked with not just having a physical relationship with, but talking with, and that would encourage him, and that would be there for him. Now she's gone. Well, during the four months, this time in chapter 2, during the four months that all of this has happened, or four years, excuse me, all of this has happened, what has been going on? There has been a war, hasn't there? And what did he do? On top of being embarrassed, the last thing that we saw in the kingdom, history tells us that he got whipped. He got defeated. So as we look at this, we see that it says, after these things, this is what's happened. After these things, he's coming home, he's whipped, he's humiliated, and 
He's coming in and he has no wife to come to, to cry on her shoulder. He has no woman to comfort him. Oh, he has all these concubines, but that's not his wife. That's not the one that he entrusted his life to, really the, the closeness that he had with her. So after these things, when the, and, and this gave him a time, I mean, he has, he has had plenty of time to, for his anger to calm down, hasn't he? And this thing about Vasti, him to start having second thoughts about too. So after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vasti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, we have a change in the king's disposition. And so... Here it is, it's been, uh, what did I say, four months. And so after having Queen Vasti removed from his side as queen, what happens? It says that he had directed his ill-fated Greek campaign and come home in humiliation instead of honor. And so she wasn't there to meet him, though he had been angry at his wife for refusing his request before the these important dignitaries, these men of the kingdom he was now past that time has a way of changing things and changing feelings and so what once was anger was perhaps now pains of regret so often we make rash decisions only to regret them later and this is what I believe was happening here with him Xerxes was now confronted with the consequences of his fury. But there is a king observation, not only the predicament that we saw from what preceded in chapter 1, but look at the king observation. These men worked around the king, and they knew how he was feeling. They knew what was going on. They knew his change in attitude. And so the king's attendants, it says, who served him, said... Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let's go all the way. Let's, let's let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of the kingdom, everywhere throughout. And he said, let them gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa. Now that was probably a good thing for many. This was like a Cinderella type story. But for many of them, but for some, maybe they didn't want their daughters given up. But it was a great opportunity, many of them thought. They would come to the harem and to the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, who, uh, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vasti. And the matter pleased the king. And they went, whew, And he did accordingly. So we see she's gone, the queen. Why is she gone? She's been banished because she didn't do what he wanted to do. Then he got between a rock and a hard place by listening to his officials and making this decree and having her removed. So now he comes back from a battle, humiliated. His wife's not there. The mood 
swift. I mean, the mood change has, has uh, shifted from humiliation and loneliness to maybe anger and soon execution because he remembered who told him to do this, who came up with the plan. The counselors knew his mood swing and how easily it could change, and they knew that they had better come up with something that would cheer him up. And so the men advised King Xerxes, and they, uh, they advised him to set up amongst the province leaders that would bring in all the virgins so that he could find the, the uh, wonderful lady that would replace Queen Vesta, or Vasti. And boy, that, that just excited him. I mean, that, that made him, you know, happy. Here was a swimsuit contest, so to speak, you know? But the catch is, it was more than just a swimsuit one. They had to spend the night with the king. So, Hollywood would love that today, wouldn't they? And... It says, then the king's attendants who served him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king and bring them before him. And, and the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So the plan was accepted. It seemed fine. It seemed to please him. One thing that seemed odd, though, about this plan was the Persian custom concerning history they say, was a queen needed to be related to one of the seven noble families in the kingdom. So some scholars believe that uh, uh, Mucan, the, uh, the leading noble who initially verbalized the idea of getting rid of Vasti, uh, had a marriageable relative in his own family who he hoped would win the crown. We don't know this for sure, but whatever the reason, the men had come up with a plan and they had come up with one quickly because they knew that they were in hot water, but not hot water, deep hot water. All they could think about was that the king needed a beautiful replacement um, that would replace Vasti or else they would be replaced, probably with their heads. So... Talking about a Cinderella story, it certainly was that. It was a making of one uh, for sure. Only a God as great as ours could use all of this political intrigue, manipulation, and corruption to pull it off. Now, people, there are some very disturbing things for some scholars in this book. They can't figure it out. That's why it's disturbing. But if God is sovereign, then we better not put him in our little box, have we? Because we'll be blown out before we know it. And so here this Cinderella story was. I mean, could you imagine the line and the length of it? And all these beautiful young women? Boy, I tell you what. The TV ads, could you, could you, uh, you know, just imagine the exercise equipment that goes on the TV, TV ads and, and the uh, Weight Watchers and, and the uh, School for Advocacy and, and uh, all that. 
the prize, the crown, wealth, parties, maids, butlers, fine clothing. What more could you want? Line up. Come and see. Come and be a part of it. Get your ticket now. Buy your swimsuit. The prize sounded good. But before we leave this exciting contest, remember that it involved a night with the king. Now people, you think about it as we go along. Here was Queen Esther. Here was Mordecai pushing her to be in that, right? Want, and trying to watch over her, make sure that she was taken care of. And she was. But what does God teach about, number one, with the nation Israel, anyone marrying outside of the nation? But number two, about immorality or adultery. Now I want to tell you that this is what blows a lot of scholars mind. Why in the world? How in the world with a God who is holy even fool with that? Well I don't have all the answers but I'll tell you this he is a sovereign God and he works even through heathen kings, doesn't he? He can work through lost people, and he does. He works through all kinds of fallen creatures. Does that make him unholy? No. It just means that he's, getting a, he's, get, he's accomplishing his purpose, and he knows how to best do it. Now let's look at the choice. All this that's involved here. Look in verse 5. Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Zer, the son of Simei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives who had been exiled with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. He was bringing to Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. She must, they must have been killed or died. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face. When her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it came about when the command and the decree of the king were heard and many young ladies were gathered to the citadel of Susa and to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him. Now I want you to underline that because that's very important. How in the world could this lady find favor in his eyes? I know she's beautiful, but many others. There had to be a radiance, there had to be a character about her, but God also had to be at work. He was at work behind 
uh, the, the curtains, if you will, if this is a scene uh, as we, we look at this play, played out. And it says, so he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food and gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her to her maids uh, and her maids to the best place in the harem. Wow! Now isn't that being taken care of? Do you remember the story of Nehemiah? You remember when he went, finally went to the king? What did the king do? He not only granted his wishes, but he gave him protection, didn't he? And he gave him the ability to pick up what he needed on the way. He wasn't even looking for that. He wasn't even thinking about that. He was just asking for the request. That's a great and awesome God. Amen? That's the kind of God that we serve. And this is what we're seeing happen here. And, and not only that, she was near where Est, uh, Mordecai was because Mordecai every day walked back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. He was concerned about her. Now, uh, when the turn of each young lady came to go in to King Ahasuerus after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women for the days of their Beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil and myrrh and, and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. I mean, all this that was advertised on TV, they got the best. The young lady would go in to the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem. The one over here, you know, this is the one that he, he looks at and then he sends them out here to the custody of Shahazgaz or Shahazgaz, Shah, that's it, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not again go into the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now when the turn of Esther the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as her daughter, came to go to the king, into the king. She did not request anything except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in Hegai's eyes. In the eyes of all who saw her. God's expanding it. Getting her ready. So Esther was taken to the king Ahasuerus. To his royal palace in the tenth month. Which is the month of Tibet. In the seventh year of his reign. We are now introduced to these characters. Mordecai. He's named 58 times in the book. Seven times uh, is identified as a Jew. His ancestor Kish was among the Jews taken to Babylon from Jerusalem in the second deportation in 597. Then Cyrus the king of Persia entered Babylon in 539 and next year gave the Jews permission to return to their land. And about 50,000 returned. In subsequent years, other Jews returned to, to Israel. But Mordecai, though, 
kept Esther there with him and they chose to remain in the Persian capital. Mordecai eventually held an official position in the government and sat at the king's gate, we know, in verse 21. Esther was Mordecai's cousin and adopted daughter. And so her Persian name was Esther, meaning star, and her Hebrew name was Hadasha, meaning myrtle, and they say that a flower on the myrtle tree looks like a star, and so shaped like a star. And so Esther was one of the beautiful virgin women taken into the king's harem. Now Mordecai, he evidently had, as I mentioned earlier, had become Persianized. He had kept the Jewish heritage a secret and told Esther to do the same. Nobody knows of their Jewish background. Not yet. Now, does that give us a right to be Americanized and not tell anyone that we are Christians? No. Just because they live that way and just because they didn't stand up for their Jewish heritage and their faith does not mean that we shouldn't stand up for our faith in Jesus Christ. A lot of people will say, well, I'll just live it out before others. And that is important, to live it out before others. But if we don't uh, voice it, vocalize it, then how will they come to know the Lord? How many people do you know that's come to know the Lord and said, I came to know the Lord because of the way you lived? I want to tell you a story that I heard about years and years ago about these two men that were working together and this man, he tried to live the godly life before his employer. And he lived such a, a, a good life. The man one day comes into the employment and he says, he's telling these other people, he said, Guess what happened to me this week? He said, what? I had a visitation from a person and they shared with me about Jesus Christ and I accepted the Lord as my Savior. And his co-worker went over to him and said, man, that's great. I, uh, you know, I, I'm a Christian too. And he looked at him and he said, you are? And he said, yeah. He said, you know, you're really basically the one that has kept me from becoming a Christian all these years. He said, I didn't know that you were a Christian, and so I was trying to live a good life like you, and I thought that was okay. Wow. It's good to live that kind of life. But faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. And so, it doesn't come by watching, just watching, and it doesn't come by just observing, but by hearing. And so Mordecai gets wind of the contest. He can now use, you know, uh, her, her beauty as a means for probably his success, but also to get her in there and, uh, you know, hopefully uh, help the situation his situation, and if any other situation arises. But if someone found out that she was a Jew, 
there would be none, none, no chance whatsoever that she would be winning a contest, probably. Matter of fact, she would be disappearing off the scene. And so God worked through all of this. He knew what was going on. Yes, she could have stood up, and yes, she could have been faithful, and Mordecai could have too, and he could have worked through that. But he also didn't let their lack of ability and their lack of faith and their lack of trust perhaps in him keep him from working through them. This is something that we, we need to look at and we'll talk about in just a few moments. In verse 10 it says, Esther did not make known her uh, people or her kindred for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known. So she did what Mordecai said. Look back in verse 9. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and food and gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem. The favor that she found in Haggai's eyes and, and heart was so strong that he gave her a private suite with seven maids and plenty to eat and drink. And Mordecai was able to come by and check on her. Every day, he walked back and forth, it says, in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. He is finding out that she is being taken care of, but what he doesn't realize is that God is working things out for her. I don't believe he, he, uh, you know, he honestly realized that at this time. And the one thing that blows our mind is that she isn't refusing to eat the meat or drink the wine which had been offered to the very idols that they worshipped, that Persia worshipped. And she is keeping her secret at all costs. says, did not make her known her people or her kindred. So we see that it seems that they were keeping uh, they were not keeping so much a kosher home, obeying the laws of Moses. Had they been following every dietary law, uh, let alone the rules for separation and worship, their, uh, their true nationality would have stuck out. It would have been discovered quickly. Had Esther practiced her Jewish faith during her year of uh, preparation or during the four years of, uh, that she had been queen, the disguise would have, uh, you know, come off. But even more serious than their lifestyle is the problem of the Jewish in a heart, a harem. And ultimately marrying a Gentile. Now you go to the law of Moses that pro prohibited all kinds of illicit sex as well as, uh, you know, uh, mismarriages. In Exodus 20 and in chapter 34, in Leviticus 18, in Deuteronomy 7. Yet God allowed this poor Jewish girl to become the wife of a lustful, evil, Gentile, pagan king. And I want to tell you, as one author said, when you consider the backslid state of the Jewish nation at that time, the disobedience of the Jewish remnant in the Persian Empire and the unspiritual lifestyle of Mordecai and Esther, is it any wonder that the name of God is absent from this book? Would you want to identify your holy name? 
with such an unholy pe uh, people. But I want to tell you, his name may not be mentioned, but he works in mysterious ways. Amen? To accomplish his purpose. So Esther was taken, it says, to King Ahasuerus, to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of uh, Tebeth, in the seventh year, or Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the women, and, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vasti. How in the world did that happen? God knew what he was doing. God, you know, worked through all of this, and maybe they weren't as obedient as they should have been, and they weren't where they ought to be as a Christian, but God still worked through them to accomplish his purpose. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. And he also made a holiday for the provinces and uh, gave gifts according to the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made her kindred or people, even as Mordecai had commanded her, known. For Esther did what Mordecai told her as she had done when under his care. You know, some very important things that we, we need to see here. First of all, so often we limit God. To limit God to only the Christian sphere is to draw boundaries around his sovereignty. So many times we think that God can only work through certain people at certain times. God can work through anybody he wants to. He can use anybody. Now, should... Should we uh, then just live any old way that we, we want to? No. He has the freedom and he obligates himself to work through Christians who are obedient. He does it himself. He obligates himself to do that. He's not obligated to an unbeliever. He's not obligated to answer prayers to, or hear prayers of an unbeliever. He's not obligated to, to work through an unbeliever or to bless him. But that does not mean that he won't do it. Or disobedient Christians. His presence penetrates regardless even the godless banquet halls of ancient Persia. Even them, he penetrates them. He is not limited to working just with believers. This is why we should pray for our, our, our uh, government, our leaders. We should pray for their salvation, but we should pray that God would do things through them that would benefit his kingdom and them not even know why they're doing it. To limit God's control affects our involvement outside our comfort zone. What do you mean by that? Well, when we limit God's control, our involvement outside our comfort zone becomes limited. That's when we stop becoming the salt and the light of this world. You see, when we start limiting God's control, we don't think that he can work across the street over here in this, this uh, elementary school. You know, we've had some difficulties 
in the past of, of even getting over there and getting into the school. And it's going to be a slow process. But do you know what our God does? Now this is what God does. This is not what Mike does. I didn't have anything to do with it. I get a call from the principal over there, the new principal. And he says, would you like to be on this committee over here, planning committee? And I said, no, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Y'all park out here and y'all don't even talk to us and all this kind of stuff, so don't even call me. Boom, doors closed. No, I said, yeah. I said, God, wow, we've been trying to do this for I don't know how long. Get in over there. Guess what the first meeting, how it went. We were sitting in there talking about different things. And they're wanting this, this big painting on the outside to occur. And, and somebody come in and do this big painting of, of the world and, and the United States. And for the kids to work on it and to be able to step on those you know, different states and learn them. But to personalize them, the lady sitting next to me, the one that's helping the assistant, she said, you know... Y'all do vacation Bible school, don't you? Man, you know what would be good? Of course, I didn't hear anybody else say this, and, and hopefully it'll work out. She said, what would be good is to personalize it. Don't y'all pray for different people in different parts of the country and in the United States? And I said, yeah. She said, that would be good to have somebody come over and teach the kids, give them a name of somebody there. Whoa, man! Is that not wonderful? Could I have done that? No! I would have messed it up royally. Still may. Y'all pray. Pray for it, that it doesn't get messed up. But let's just pray that the doors keep on being open. Man. And the parking out here. Daniel said something that's very good, very good. If we could get some retirees out here to just go out there and meet the people in the parking lot and maybe give them, and the kids when they bring them across, uh, back across, maybe cookies or something like that. Get them hyped up so that when they take them home, they'll be re really hyped. No, but I mean give them something. Greet them. Talk to them. You see, it's going to be a long process. It's going to be, as the evangelist said, a strategy. It's going to be one where we maybe don't get to mention Christ at first, but hopefully we will. But that will be our goal. Also, no amount of evil, and this is the neat thing about it. I have a hard time with this. No amount of evil frustrates God's purposes. Man, they frustrate mine, don't they? I see how our culture and everything else has just, in a lot of ways, as I'm looking at an older guy standing back seeing it, I, not being raised up in it and wrapped up in it, I see it where it's, you know, disintegrated somewhat. But you know, my parents probably said the same thing about ours, especially when the 60s came along. Yeah. <laughs> and 
so, a lot of times, you know, I just, it frustrates me. I'll just be honest with you. But I want to tell you, wrong grieves God. And there's serious consequences with sin that follow. But I want to also share that no amount of wrong frustrates God and his sovereign purposes. Amen? Oh, me. Uh, you're, you're probably like me then. God is never surprised by what secular or carnal societies might do or be like. Those involved may not glorify him, but never doubt his presence at work. And how many of you have doubted at times? Yeah. God, where are you? What are you doing? I'm behind the curtain. You don't see me working. Just keep your eyes open. You'll see it. Look spiritually. Put on your spiritual glasses. You'll see me at work. But God, I need new glasses. They're kind of blurred. I'm not seeing it yet. You'll see it. Just keep on praying. Keep on being faithful. You'll see it. And I love, you know, our handicaps. We all have handicaps, don't we? Our handicaps are not sovereign weaknesses keeping God from using us ever again. How many of you have failed in here? All. Now, see, you didn't raise your hand, a lot of you, so I see that you've already failed. <laughs> Okay, we've all failed, haven't we? We've all failed. Does that mean that God's not going to be able to use us? No. But we get that way and we feel that way at times, and we should be encouragers to help others see that God still can use you. Now sure, at times we've, we've sinned and we made a big, big mess of things. And we need to acknowledge that, and we need to confess it. But God can still use us. He can still use us. That's an awesome God. That's an exciting God. And I'm going to end with this one. God specializes in turning the mundane into the meaningful. That's why we need to be at, at work and, and, and we need to have our eyes open because this mundane, this insignificant thing will and can and should be and is meaningful for God. Now don't we have a wonderful God? Don't we have an awesome God? Everybody stand up. I won't say stand up on your feet. Stand up. Man, we're going to rejoice in God. We're going to sing, and I'm not going to lead you, and so you're going to be able to rejoice. Tank's going to lead us, so let's hear him lead us.